0: church next podcast we're going to be hearing from bishop mark beckwith on civil discourse on really understanding how jesus saw every person as human and intentionally engaged with them from a perspective of the love of god
1: i'm carrie graves a church next course producer and i'm liz brignac another church next course producer
0: bishop mark beckwith is the retired bishop of newark where he served for 12 years until his retirement in 2018. He is one of the organizers of the Religious Leaders of New Jersey and served as president, and he also helped to form the Bishops United Against Gun Violence Group, which is a network of 100 bishops that was founded after the Newtown, Connecticut shooting in 2012. Bishop Beckwith's book, Seeing the Unseen, Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines is new, and he posts weekly on his website, markbeckwith.net.
1: I've been really lucky in that I differ politically from a lot of my family, which does not always feel like a blessing. Sometimes it feels incredibly irritating, but it forces me, I know these people, I love these people. I have known these people since I was born. The best person I have ever met is my husband's grandmother who recently died. And she lived to be a hundred. She was tough, but she and I could not have differed more politically. And she would give, I mean, she was so kind. She didn't not love anyone. She forgave people that I was sort of amazed she could forgive. Wow. You know, she was a light to everyone who knew her. And she also maintained political beliefs that I disliked very much. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus never wants us to reduce people to one quality.
0: Exactly. And I think in the in the later segment, we're going to hear from Bishop Beckwith on today. um, He talks about gun safety Um, And that term is specific because he asked folks who disagreed with him what term they thought would work best so that they could have civil discourse and talk to each other and, you know, really look each other in the eyes and listen and see how we can, you know, find common ground, which if we get to the bottom of it, for me, there's always that love of God inside each and every person. And um, it's just super important to take time to
1: find that. It is. And. You know, I've, we did a civil discourse curriculum. It's actually available for free. Um, yes. And it's really good. It was done through the Go- Office of Government Development with yes. a very careful person named Alan Yarborough, who helped put it to, you know, he was the one who put the curriculum together. He's fantastic. And he <laughs> was very, very careful about every word that went mm-hmm. into it. It was a really, really good curriculum. Alan recommends a moderator, a very yeah. well-trained moderator. hmm Mark's class doesn't really go into the specifics of how those areas would be created. I would recommend doing seeing the unseen in conjunction maybe with the civil discourse curriculum, because it gives you some really practical ways to kind of make the Mandorla space happen in a way that doesn't hurt other people. Although you do have to be willing to listen to arguments you don't like. And yeah, it's, harder than it sounds in that doorless space.
0: Yes. And getting to the I statements and it's okay for me to say something and for Liz to say, well, that's interesting for me. It's the opposite and mm-hmm. you no know, fixing of anyone, just
1: those good group norms. What Mark will be saying today sort of opens the door. He's like, okay, you've got yes. his emphasis on Christ seeing everybody as a fully recognized human being. And really interacting that way, as opposed to just sort of like, oh, yeah, Jesus wants us to do that. And then he talks about how you get into a room with people who disagree with you on very fundamental levels, and you engage with them as fully recognized human beings. And then you jump into how does that work? Well, here's um, the Office of Government Relations' entire curriculum on a step by step, very carefully thought out. How you can make this work. So <laughs>
0: that is such a great idea. And then yeah, the what it takes to step into that brave space and be there. And then what do we do? Love that.
2: Hi, my name is Mark Beckwith. I am the retired bishop of the Diocese of Newark. I currently live in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, and I'm going to be talking mostly about a book that I published this year called Seeing the Unseen Beyond Paradigms, Prejudices and Party Lines. And the origin of the book comes from a story in my time in Newark. Uh, When I arrived there uh, in 2007, I noticed that there was an outdoor soup line and I paid attention to it for the first few days because I had started soup kitchens, worked in shelters, a big part of my ministry. But after a few weeks, I didn't pay attention to it anymore. Why? Because I was on the fourth floor of our office looking out across this new diocese to me, seeing its congregations, its people, its concerns, its hopes, its problems, all of that. And so the many men, and they were mostly men who came to the soup line next door, faded into the background. They were sort of foreground to the Passaic River, which lay just beyond. About two or three years in, a priest in the diocese came up to me and asked, what goes on next door? And I said, well, there's a soup kitchen. There's a soup line. She said, let's go. And so we did. And not to serve, but to have conversation with the many men who were there. And what I'm embarrassed to admit is that I discovered and I learned from the people who ran the soup line that there were 500 men who came every day, 250 in the morning, 250 at noon, and I didn't see them. I didn't see them, and as we had conversations, we uh, and developed relationships. I remember after the first debriefing, the priest who encouraged me encouraged us to go over uh, to have this uh, this encounter. Pointed her finger in my chest, and she said, "Don't you dare go just once," and so I didn't. And I went regularly, uh, sometimes for a brief bit of time, sometimes for a, a longer period of time. And in those many engagements with these guys next door I built some relationships and I heard their stories and I learned from many of them that they lived with a level of courage and faith that was never tested to that degree in me. And uh, one man who I developed a a deep personal relationship with, he was my age, he had gone to Boston University, I don't know why he didn't finish, although I have some ideas why he didn't finish. Uh, And we would talk with each other, and we share with one another, uh, what we were reading. And he told me he was reading James Joyce and I looked at him with a quizzical eye said, I I find that hard to believe because nobody can read James Joyce I mean I've tried to read James Joyce I can't get through James Joyce, he said no I'm reading James Joyce I love James Joyce he said Mark what are you reading. And I said, I just finished this book called Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And uh, he says, the American dream is built for people like me on the backs of people like you, somebody who is African-American. And he looked me deep in the eye and he said, you didn't know that. And uh, I said, well, I did know that, but not to the level that he did. And so, again, developed this relationship, and, and uh, it was said, and it was very clear that these men who came, uh, many of them were homeless. Some of them had lived in single-room occupancy dwellings, uh, but they were all poor in one way or another. And it made me reflect on the notion of the poor, which Jesus refers to many, many times, Uh, creating a category. And as I reflected on people who are identified as poor, they don't have names and they don't have stories. And we keep them distant from ourselves and make it very difficult for people who are financially poor to join into the rest of the community with the rest of us. And it reminded me of a conversation I heard or a lecture I heard when I was in college uh, nearly 50 years ago, Bill Russell, the iconic uh, center for the Boston Celtics, arguably one of the best basketball players of all time, came and spoke to a college audience. And he talked about going through an airport once and a woman came up to him and said, oh, you're a basketball player. And he said to her very graciously and clearly, no, madam. I'm a man who plays basketball. His humanity came first. That was what was most important. And as I continued my ongoing journey next door to the soup line, uh, I realized that there are all sorts of impediments uh, that we have received along the way that make it difficult for us to fully identify someone in their humanity.
0: So Liz, we're gonna hear from Mark again in a minute on taking this notion of seeing everyone as fully human a little bit more deeply into mission. It's very tempting for us in the church to see the poor as the poor, as we were talking about, to objectify people under a label. But when we enter into the space with them and understand the problems that they experience and that we don't just simply by listening, and showing compassion and, and just getting a feel for their position. We are much more able to engage in an authentic relationship, I think, with them. And then actually, um, I even hate saying the word them, it's it's us, you know, but much more able to engage in authentic relationships so that we can um, use our resources to be helpful and to show that we want to live in a world more reflective of the kingdom of God.
1: Uh, his... I thought his lecture on mission was really interesting. Have you ever seen the African queen, which is my mother's favorite movie? So I know
0: I never have, I have to confess. I certainly know of it.
1: Well, it begins with the main character's name is Rose and she and her brother are doing mission work and they're in, I don't remember what country they're in. It's been a while since I actually Mm. saw it, but I remember the beginning. She's playing, either a movable organ or a piano. And she's playing these very staunch, you know, Anglican hymns. And he's preaching. And the people listening to him don't even speak the language. They're all just sort of Mm. there because they kind of have to be there because these people have come. And it's incredibly patronizing. And the movie's point is that it's patronizing. That she is there just on her religious high horse trying to deliver God to these people who clearly don't have God and her, the whole movie is about how she transforms into a different kind of person, but the movie and Christianity both have come to understand that that viewpoint of mission work is not just incorrect, but pretty horrible. Yes. And so now we've kind of moved into stage two that we need to move out of, which is, (laughs) oh, well, we're here to help the poor. Yes. And you know, what we're there to do is build relationships and learn as much as give and form partnerships across sometimes lines of distance, sometimes lines of faith, you know, give but receive, or else it's not really the kind of relationship we're supposed to be pursuing. We're supposed to be pursuing these relationships because we're Christians and we want to bond with other Christians, not because we're like, the beneficent people who know all, and (laughs) they're the nice people who take. That's not what we do. And that's what Mark talks about in this lecture.
0: Yes, that is excellent. And it puts me in mind of of a lot of great stuff. I learned doing community organizing work, uh, faith-based community organizing in South Carolina, where you, you start from the ground up, you get the people together and you listen one-on-one to what keeps you up at night, you know, what worries you. And then we come together And it's it's great when there's a disparity in the populations to engage the same practice like it sounds harsh when we say well, like you said we're going to help the poor and then it's us and them. Well it's all of us and let's come together and talk about what keeps each other up at night and listen and learn and then um, engaging members of the Community in mission too Is really building those relationships so let's hear from mark on how we can engage in mission work maybe a little more deeply, a little differently than we have been.
2: I want to talk about mission. Uh, Mission uh, is something that is uh, front and center to us as people in the church. And for about 450 years or so we have sort of embodied or embraced the notion of mission being the idea that we bring God to places where God is not. Think of that for a moment. Think of the arrogance of that when in fact mission is joining where God is already working. So in the last say 40 years I've been ordained just over that, Uh, we've moved from that kind of arrogant, imperialistic notion of mission to uh, offering service, to offering uh, charity, which is important, uh, and doing for others. So much of outreach that I hear in congregations is about doing for others. And if somebody doesn't have a place to live, you need to find them a place to live. If they don't have anything to eat, you need to find them something to eat. But doing for often reinforces the gap between those who have and those who don't. And I think the challenge in mission is to be with one another, to be with one another. And my favorite example of that is in... um, uh, Luke's gospel, the 24th chapter, it's the story of the road to Emmaus, which takes place on Easter morning, when two followers, not two disciples, but two followers of Jesus are walking to Emmaus. And they meet a stranger. We know it's Jesus, the risen Christ, but they don't. And he asks them rather coyly, what's going on? And they say, oh, my God, you haven't heard. Our leader was arrested. He was tortured. He was killed. And now this morning we heard from two women uh, that he came back to life. This is too much for us. We're going to Emmaus. Anything to get out of Jerusalem because we may be next. And the stranger, who is Jesus, we know that. They don't. Says, can I go with you? And they say, sure. So they walk with each other seven miles to Emmaus. and In the course of that time, they develop a relationship. And finally, the two followers of Jesus say to this stranger, still a stranger, uh, will you be our guest tonight? And he says, sure. So they go into the inn, check in, come down to dinner. And as the story goes, Jesus takes the bread and breaks it. And as soon as it is broken, they recognize him as the risen Christ, and he vanishes from their sight. But in many ways, that story should not have taken place the way it is described, because quite properly and expectedly, the two followers of Jesus could have said, should have said when Jesus took up the bread, oh, no, no, you're our guest, you're our guest, we break the bread. Part of mission is allowing the guest to be the host in a way so that we can be with one another. In a very important way. And I think uh, being with one another, and also mission, is not so much uh, bringing God, but is joining God. And to realize that the people we are serving can be our teachers. Uh, These guys next door uh, became my teachers in very important ways, and I had to work through all my prejudice and, and all the rest Uh, that would suggest that, oh, no, no, I'm the one who knows something because I have all these things attached to my life and they have very little, but they could be teachers. They had wisdom. And we live in a world which has gradations of who has wisdom and who does not. And uh, my encounter uh, next door opened me up to my arrogance and uh my kind of a deep-seated prejudice that we all carry uh we all learned a prejudice somewhere at the kitchen table on the playground in school sometimes in our congregations we all learned it and the challenge is not to get rid of it but to figure out where did it come from how does it work and how can we manage it there's not a speck of ground on the face of the earth where god is not working and what God needs and wants from us to join where God is working, particularly the places which are filled with darkness and despair and confusion and pain. God needs for us to join God in those places, which means, it seems to me, we need to journey outside the confines of our buildings, of our churches, into the community and join god there building relationships and discovering a new way of being
0: so next we're going to hear from mark on entering the mandorla space And if you haven't heard of the mandorla, it is a a medieval concept that represents the intersection between heaven and earth. So just picture two circles and how they come together to create a Venn diagram. So it creates an almond shaped space that holds great significance, actually, across different religious traditions and in Christian art also. And this is the place where separate worlds separate ways of thinking separate realities come together so we're going to hear about how this is a a holy space that we must enter. In order to authentically attempt to do this work together in the world of seeing each other as fully human and fully children of God.
2: What I discovered uh, by going next door uh, to the soup uh, outdoor soup kitchen every week is that I was entering into the Mandorla space. And there was all sorts of pressure for me not to do that uh, because I had uh, a huge responsibility. I had a hundred congregations, lots of clergy, all these issues uh, that I needed to pay attention to. And it was easy, and there was all sorts of permission given for me not to pay attention next door, for, not, for me not to see what was happening. And so once I went next door into the mandorla, I could not not see anymore. And I think the life of faith is inviting us in, into places where we don't want to see And when we see, we can't say we didn't see it. I was introduced to a concept in an image called the mandorla, M-A-N-D-O-R-L-A. It's the Italian word for almond. It's the uh, shape that's created when two circles intersect. Think of Venn diagram from sixth grade math. And uh, there's a lot of medieval art Uh, that depicts the mandorla, which is different than the halo. The halo is a circle above. The mandorla is this almond shape. And often Jesus is depicted in the mandorla. And initially the mandorla in medieval art was the intersection between heaven and earth. Uh, What I see today in our world, in our increased polarization culture that we live in, It's the intersection between red and blue. And increasingly in our culture, voices and forces on each side want their adherents to say separate, to not have any intersection with the other side because they're demonized or declared to be wrong. Entering the mandorla requires some risk. It's a place of transformation. It's a place of hope. Uh, as I talk about my book and about the Mandorla and Braver Angels, which I'll mention in just a moment, uh, which well, I'll mention it now, Braver Angels is a national movement uh, to try and uh, 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 reduce the level of polarization in America. It started in 2016 after the election, realizing that we're in a polarized situation, and what Braver Angels does is pulls people together, equal numbers of red and blue people, not to pull one side to the other, but it's to see if we can find common ground. Initially, it was called Better Angels, referring to Lincoln's first inaugural address, appealing to the better angels of our nature. Changed our name because another group already had that, had that uh, term. And uh, given the increased polarization, we need to even be braver. Uh, so, Braver Angels is is a growing movement uh, engaging lots and lots of people. I refer to Braver Angels as the secular version of the Anglican movement. We were created. We actually, our tradition is the mandorla, because when we were created in the 16th century, we were we found this space between Catholic and Protestant. And as Episcopalians, if you're asked, "Are you Catholic or Protestant?" we can glibly say yes. We are both, we were created in that tension. And from that tension, new ideas, new opportunities, new epiphanies can emerge. So I spent a lot of time talking about the Mandorla in my book and one of the examples I offer is what Desmond Tutu did in South Africa after apartheid was dismantled. He chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was thought if you litigated all the abuses that happened during those 30, 40 years of apartheid, we'd still be in in, uh, the process and the enmity and the resentment and the hurt and the grief would still be there. What they decided to do is invite people into the Mandorla to tell their stories, to tell their stories. And through that, if they were honest and really could confess uh, their abuse, their injustice, all the rest of it, that would enable the the country to move forward. So uh, appealing to the mandorla, getting into the mandorla is uh, something that I think that we can do. In some ways, we do that every Sunday at the Eucharist when we exchange the peace. I remember when the piece was introduced, I was in college, this is in the early 1970s, and the Episcopal Church I attended in Connecticut was not eager to engage in what they thought was this new liturgical practice. Some people sat down, some people walked out, people said, I'm here to worship God, not to pay attention to the person to the right of me. And I remember my father saying to me, he thought that the piece was some public relations device cooked up by headquarters to thaw out what was then known as the frozen chosen Episcopalians. I was a religion major at the time, and I said, no, 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 it goes back to the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus says, if you're bringing a gift to the altar, first put your gift down and be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then bring your gift to the altar. The person we exchange the peace with in the liturgy symbolically represents someone in our life that we need to be reconciled with. And if the person standing next to us is the person we live with, often that's the person we most need to be reconciled with. When we exchange the peace, it is making the statement to the church, but more importantly to the world, that whatever separates us can be brought together through the reconciling love of Jesus Christ. We are reconcilers. Over the years, it has become a celebration of community, which is a wonderful thing. But beneath that and before that, It is an act of reconciliation. It is an invitation into the mandorla. I'm more and more disposed to thinking that entering the mandorla is the prophetic space.
0: going to talk about a practical issue, which is often referred to as gun control. Sometimes for us, gun violence. We mentioned earlier that Mark um, had a discussion with some folks about using the term gun safety for very particular reasons in order not to shut conversation off. And so he's going to use this issue to talk about having entered that Mandorla space and how people with really opposite views can come together on an issue and actually do something about the parts of that issue that are harming people.
1: I really enjoyed this one because I like the idea that you are talking about the Mandorla space in theory, and then you take this issue that everyone loves to think we're so divided on, and we are divided on, it. I'm not pretending those divisions aren't there, but there is common ground. And it's a great example of how the sort of forces in our world are kind of pushing us apart on this issue. Because, for example, a lot of people want some gun safety regulations. They don't want their ownership of guns threatened. Right. But they do want, for example, a lot of people seem to want the private sales and gun shows loopholes closed. And a lot of them don't want people with a history of domestic violence or abuse, getting access to a gun. I mean, no one wants people to get shot. Right. They just, you know, and on other issues, we disagree fundamentally. I'm not pretending those issues aren't there, but there is common ground and this is a great way to illustrate it. And, It makes you wonder which other issues, maybe even some of our most divisive issues, because there's so much benefit to the people. A politician saying, well, there's some iffiness on this super divided issue is not going to get reelected. What you want is to whip Mm -hmm. up people's intensity on that issue so that they get out instead of like, if it's raining, they go to the polls anyway, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of secular reasons that have not that much to do with the issues themselves, why you would want people not to find common ground on these issues. Right. And the more divisive they are, maybe the more common ground exists because those are the ones that energize people. Those are the ones where the most energy is being used and pushing us apart.
0: Oh, I really like that. Holding that tension of the opposite so that, What I like to call the transcendent third or the synthesis can arrive, and this is pretty exciting because this is where we as people of faith. If we get it together, we can become leaders and having this sort of civil discourse um, in our communities before we as individuals go to the polls and and vote based on you know what we want to do to make a better world, this is the hard part of following Jesus, this is one of the very hardest parts is to really come together and try to engage with people. So let's hear from Mark on how he handled this issue of gun safety by entering into the Mandorla space.
2: I wanna talk a bit about guns and, uh, and gun violence. And I got involved in this after the Sandy Hook shooting, which as of this recording is 10 years, two days from now, December 14th, 2012. And I had... Uh, engaged with three other bishops who were interested in doing this. And then when Newtown Connecticut happened, there were all sorts of other bishops that wanted to work on reducing gun violence and formed Bishops United Against Gun Violence. And in these 10 years, we have over a hundred bishops from all over the country who are uh, members of Bishops Against Gun Violence. And we are working through advocacy, education, and public witness to offer what we can. We've had um, uh, demonstrations uh, and actions at each of the general conventions. We've appeared before Congress. Uh, We have a website. We're doing all sorts of things uh, that we can uh, using our platforms to reduce the scourge of gun violence. And one of the things I realized, not unlike my experience with the soup kitchen, is I knew very little about the gun culture. And so about three, four years ago, I went to a gun show. I went to a gun show and I started walking around and, uh, and I was listening to conversations that I didn't understand. Not that people weren't talking English but they were talking about something very dear to them using technical language that was unfamiliar to me. And as I walked along and listened, I realized, oh, there is a gun culture in this country. And it goes back to the beginning. And, uh, and guns have been a part of America from the beginning for good or ill. And I realized as I spent time in that gun show is that the issue, yes, is about guns, But more than that, deeper than that, it's about a culture which defines the people who were there. And their fear is that people like me and people who are on the other side of the issue want to erase that culture. And every time that happens, they double down because they don't want that culture erased. One thing I learned early on by someone who's been working in the gun violence prevention movement for a long, long time because his brother was shot and killed by a gun. I, uh, as people often do, I started talking about gun control and he slapped me on the wrist and he said, please don't use that term. He said, as soon as you use the term gun control, people line up on opposite sides of the room and start hurling insults at each other. And the conversation devolves to the second amendment and all bets are off. I said, well, what should I say? Gun safety. Gun safety. And that may not be the best term either, but it's a desire to build a bridge to people who are gun rights owners. I've done several podcasts with gun rights owners. And and, and it's difficult for both of us. It's difficult for me because we have 4% of the world's population and 42% of the guns. And uh, it's, it's a it's an epidemic. But what I'm realizing is is that what's important is to try and engage people in the gun culture uh, who will change the gun culture. And we know from data and polling that more than 60, 70% of gun owners want some gun reform but they're resisted by the NRA and the Sports Shooting Federation, uh, which have a very effective strategy and always shut it down. How to give some of these gun rights people, many of whom I know who are deeply committed to safety, deeply committed to safety, where we disagree, the fundamental disagreement is that, I think, and people who subscribe to my position, think that more guns make people less safe. Many gun owners will say just the opposite. More guns make us safer. The other thing I discovered as I was attending this gun show is I come at this, as many of us do, with the level of arrogance and self-righteousness that just ticks off the other side and people feel shamed. And my experience in 43 years of ordained ministry, when people feel shamed, um, it's very hard to move any kind of conversation forward. One of the hardest things for me to do uh, is to engage or enter into the Mandorla space around the issue of guns. Uh, because I am grieved, I am horrified by the level of gun violence in this country. And there are days, and I just want to say, I want to give this up. It's too hard. But I'm more and more disposed if we can, if I can engage in that Mandorla space with gun rights uh, defenders, there is a possibility of reconciliation, of something emerging from that. When I go into the Mandorla, in this place in between, uh, be it red or blue, gun rights owners, gun violence prevention people, uh, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, it's not compromising, it's finding common ground. And there's a difference there's a difference. Because when I go into these spaces, I'm not compromising my positions, but I'm allowing myself to be open. Ah, is there another way of looking at this, of being able to see? And as our country gets more and more polarized, we are sort of conditioned, almost trained to see in a certain way. And uh, I think that Jesus... Said no, no, no. We can see more broadly than that, to see the face of Christ in everyone, in everyone, particularly in the in the faces of the people we don't want to see the face of Christ in.
1: We actually have a few courses that are quite good on the subject of coming together in, they don't call them Mandorla spaces, but civil discourse spaces, finding each other's humanity. There's Bridging the Political Divide with Parker Palmer. That one is a spectacular class. There is Civil Conversations in Uncivil Times with Ray Suarez. And we were talking about the tension of two sides pulling against each other. We have a class that's all about groups sort of pulling against each other and the idea of the space that that creates being a holy space mm-hmm. rather than a space of villainy. Yes. And it's called Reading the Bible Through the Lens of Conflict. It's by Padrag Otwama. Oh, yes.
0: the Irish And poet. it's... <laughs>
1: It talks about a sort of different kind of Mandala space, a space focused less. I mean, it would, of course, advocate treating everybody as a fully human human being. But he talks more about the benefits of conflict, the benefits of conflicting views, creating space for change, as opposed to keeping us sort of coasting through without any kind of challenge and how that Christ enters that space.
0: So we're really excited about this upcoming class. Oh yeah. values, Red Letter Christianity 1 and 2, which is putting them to work. That's the end of our time with Mark today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about us, go to churchnext.tv. For a $9 monthly subscription, you have access to all of our online courses. And we have a rich library of courses, as you can hear. We're going to close with a prayer, a little bit longer one than usual, but important to this subject. It is called, Ourselves at the Center, by Walter Brueggemann. We are your people, mostly privileged, competent, entitled. Your people who make futures for ourselves, seize opportunities, get the job done, and move on. In our self-confidence, we expect little beyond our productivity. We wait little for that which lies beyond us and then settle with ourselves at the center. And you, you in the midst of our privilege, our competence, our entitlement. You utter large, deep oaths beyond our imagined futures. You say, fear not, I am with you. You say, nothing shall separate us. You say, something of new heaven and a new earth. You say, you are mine, I have called you by name. You say, my faithfulness will show concretely and will abide. And we find our privilege eroded by your purpose, our competence shaken by your future, our entitlement unsettled by your other children. Give us grace to hear your promises, give us freedom to trust your promises, give us patience to wait, and humility to yield our dreamed future to your large purpose we pray in the name of jesus who is your deep yes over our lives amen
1: amen